two weeks ago, we, we went through this idea of Jesus, and he meets a woman in Samaria, and uh, he really calls her out and um, airs out all of her dirty laundry, and she goes on after that not to slap him or to call him bad names or talk behind his back, but she goes out to proclaim that he is amazing in that he is God, which would never happen with me. I don't know. Well, I do know because it's Jesus. And so what we figured out was that Jesus came in the Bible, though in John, the beginning of John, it says that he came in grace and he came in truth. And so when you meet Jesus, when you encounter him, you don't just get truth. You don't just get what you need to hear. You get grace with it too, which gives you hope for your future. And so we're going to really stay in this same area context of scripture uh, but I, I believe that god has something for us for the new years and this is what it says in john 4 1 through 4 it says therefore when the lord knew that the pharisees had heard that jesus made and baptized more disciples than john though jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples he left judea and departed again to galilee but he needed to go through samaria so we already know that samaria is a place where jews did not go uh, if you had to get to Galilee and you were where Jesus was at this point, uh, you didn't really want to go through Samaria because it was a bad place. There were bad people there. It was, it was really a racist thing. Uh, they would walk all the way around for miles and miles around Samaria just because they didn't want to be there. And so Jesus is on this detour because some people are saying some things about him. So he has to clarify some stuff. He's on this unexpected journey to clear up this drama. And he goes in a way as a Jewish man with 12 Jewish disciples that a Jewish person really shouldn't go. So it's unexpected. And many people, they saw Jesus as the Messiah already. So people are looking at him and, and they're excited and they're expecting and they're, they're thinking of the Messiah. And now Jesus might be the Messiah. And so what do people want from a Messiah during that day in the context is they want people to, or this Messiah to really release them from Roman rule and to save them from the pagan society that they're going to have to be in. And so they're looking at Jesus. And yes, Jesus was, was this great uh, savior, but not in the way that the Jews thought that he was going to save them. And you have to understand when it comes to Jesus and the dynamic of Jesus and the social expectations on the Messiah of the day, that Jesus was an absolute disappointment to most of the Jews. Uh, as far as culturally goes and society goes, he was very frustrating uh, to the Jewish people. He, he rarely did what people wanted him to do. Uh, you hardly ever would find uh, him meeting religious expectations or cultural um, um, expectations as well. Um, he would just, he wouldn't do what you thought he was going to do. If you were a religious Jew, you would think that Jesus was going to do something as the coming Messiah, and he wouldn't do it. He would do something completely different. Even in our society today, what we would think Jesus should do, a lot of times he didn't do. Uh, one example, for um, for instance, is Jesus's first miracle, turning water into the line, wine. Now, we're not even going to get into that. We're not even going to get into the water into wine part. I want to talk about you've only got three and a half years to do ministry here on earth to change the entire world. And you're going to a party <laughs> like seriously, that's what you're going to do. And these parties weren't like a couple of hours. Yeah, you got married. Jewish culture, you had a seven day party. So Jesus is hanging out for seven days, having a good time, meeting people. 
And I don't know about you, but even today in culture, I'd be like, Jesus, don't you have better things to do? I mean, you've got the entire world to save. You've got to change the entire mind, mindset and paradigm of the entire world. And you're hanging out at a party. What do you think you're doing, Jesus? Like, that's culturally, socially, he was just, he was different. Whenever you thought Jesus was going to go right, he was going to go up, down, left, right, sideways, center, spin around, do the hokey pokey. I mean, he was just going to do something that you weren't expecting. In fact, last week when we talked on Christmas morning about the coming of Jesus and the Christmas story, the way he came, it didn't even make sense. Like, the way that you thought a king should come is not the way he came because he did things in a way that was wise to him, was wise to God, but maybe not always wise to us. So back to the story. Jesus, he's on his way to Galilee. Um, The most direct route is through Samaria, a place where the Jews would never expect for him to go. Uh, He tells the disciples, hey, follow me. He starts heading towards Samaria, and I'm sure the, the disciples were like, hey, Jesus, you're going the wrong way. They're bad people there. We don't do that. There's ungodliness there. And, and Jesus, he, you know, does what he's going to do. And he goes and the disciples are like, okay, well, whatever, we'll, we'll follow you. And then once the, he finds this well, which was a significant well during the day, and just their luck, there's a Samaritan woman there. And a Samaritan woman is even worse than being in Samaria. Samaria because you just that that was the worst of the worst Jewish men saw women as lower than dogs in Samaria so this is like as bad as you can get the disciples who are been raised somewhat racist are are probably flipping their lid they don't know what to do Jesus doesn't want them there so he basically tells them get out of here go go get some food for me. <laughs> like He's just trying to get rid of them so that he can get them out of the way so Jesus can have his way. So he just says, go get lunch. And so he starts to talk to this woman, very immoral. Again, a moral woman. No one knows who this woman is except for what she had done wrong. She's been married five times. The, woman, the guy that she's living with is not her husband. Yet Jesus, who has come to save the world, takes time not just to say, hi, how are you doing? God bless you. But he sits down to have a conversation with this woman. And he basically lets her talk about whatever she wants to talk about. Jesus is not in a hurry. I think we could see that. And I think the reason that Jesus is not in a hurry is because he knows that he is right where God has him. I think a lot of times we're in a hurry. We're rushing to get somewhere in life because we don't think we are where God has us to be. And we would see a woman who's in front of us and we would just pass by her when God has an appointment. And maybe what God has for you to do is right in front of your face and you didn't even know it. And so this lady, she she doesn't want to even deal with her issues. She wants to talk theology. Um, She's got all this stuff. It's sort of like if you want to talk about revelation, even though you've got issues in your marriage and, and addictions and financial problems. And you're like, but what about the end times? And it's like, that's really not what you should be talking about. And so then she finally gets to this place where she's like, okay, well, the Messiah is coming. And just like, hey, nice to meet you. And, um, and she's like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. It's all coming back together. And then the disciples show up. And as they're coming, this woman sees uh, the disciples coming. They're like sucking air. They can't believe that Jesus is actually talking to this woman. And so she gets up and goes. And we know she went really quick. She was excited, but she was also probably somewhat startled because she left her water jug, which was very important during that day. You didn't have running water at your house 
no plumbing. So this was a very uh, important, crucial life source for her, and she leaves it. Um, now the disciples, they're annoyed, they're confused, they're frustrated. Jesus is sitting there. The disciples are sitting there. There's awkward silence going on. No one wants to call out Jesus because they know they're probably wrong. Um, but Jesus isn't going to say anything either. And then finally someone just says, okay, well, Jesus, you must be hungry. And, and so that's where the story really picks up. And we're going to talk about this morning, John 4, verses 31 and 32. It says, and in the meantime, the disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat which you do not know of. Now, I love these disciples because they make me feel like there's hope for me uh, because they are completely ordinary. Like, not on this high spiritual level, like, yes, Jesus, you, you have food that is not of this earth. You have food from heaven. They're, this is what they're saying. Who got a McDonald's? <laughs> like, like, they're like, wait, wait, did you get him food? Did, did you get him food? Because I thought we got him food. And, and so, like, it's completely not what they're, they're thinking, this whole idea of spirituality. And so John 4, 33 says, therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him any food? I mean, they can't even pick up on Jesus's undertones here, like that this is so much more. There's no food around, obviously, except for what they have. And they're just confused about who snuck him food and who's trying to brown nose Jesus and give him the food that they were supposed to give him. So it goes in the next verse. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And then he goes on into the mission of God and how urgent the harvest is, but what Jesus is saying here is, I'm good. Why is Jesus good? Because I'm doing the will of God. This morning, I want to talk about this metaphor that Jesus uses, this idea of food, this focus on, I have food that you don't know about. And um, I believe that when you are actively pursuing and walking in God's plan for your life, there's this sensation, there's a nourishment emotionally spiritually physically and it actually feels like food it's strength in your body so um let's start with prayer father we thank you so much for this day lord i thank you for the word that you have for us god i pray that and i know that the words that and the things that we learn in this room are not for this room but for out there Lord, I pray that as we hear from your word today and the things that you want to speak into our lives, that uh, we would not just be changed in these seats, but that we would be changed in our lives and in our daily uh, walking with you, Jesus. So we believe these things. We um, expect for you to change us today, and we ask them in your name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Um, I think marriage is amazing. I've been, I've been married for 11 years now, and I love talking about marriage. I actually tell quite a few stories about our marriage. Um, it's a lot of fun most of the time. Um, and, but there are times where marriage is hard. I, we, we all sort of know that, and no one's um, trying to ignore the fact that there are times where you are a person, and your wife is a person, and you have different views, and you think your view's right, and they think their view's right, and I'm wrong, and my wife is right. Um, but, and you know, I think one of the reasons, obviously not the main reason, but one of the reasons that God instilled marriage is so that we as men, and I'm going to pick on men because I am a guy, um, but I think it's so that we don't just do what we want uh, all the time when we want to do it. And, and that's a good thing because then nothing would ever get done and we'd watch football all day and the house would be a mess and the kids would not be eating and they would not have brushed teeth or at least that's my, my world. So, um, 
But you get enamored with this beautiful girl, and she laughs at your jokes, and uh, she goes to movies that you like, which is awesome. And then you get married, and she tells you and informs you that actually your jokes are not funny, and that she hates Star Wars, and that she's a Cardinals fan. And you're like, what in the world? How did this happen? She's not in here. She's doing the kids' ministry, but uh, she told me she's a Cardinals fan, so... Um, but you know, the, it starts early in marriage where you're like, oh my gosh, like maybe th- this isn't what exactly what I thought it was. It's actually better, but there's things that we need to learn. And so you start to learn early. And you know, a lot of people will say that like marriage, the first year is so hard. And I don't know if that's the best thing to tell people that like, you're going to have an awful time your first year of marriage. Like it's not very encouraging at all. Like maybe it's just like, Hey, hope for the best. And if you need help, we're here to help you and, and to walk with you and show you what we made mistakes on, but I don't know. It's just just my thought, but I know there's a learning curve and uh, mine was pretty steep and my wife knew it coming in because I didn't really date in high school. I didn't really date in college. My wife was really my first real girlfriend. So I had like no clue whatsoever. I like should have been reading dating for dummies because I I just, I I didn't know anything. And so one of the first things that I did when we started dating, uh, we'd been, we'd known each other for a while over the summer. We had talked and did like the whole long distance, hey, let's get to know each other thing. And then she came back to school and uh, we started talking. And so I brought her to my college group, my my church's college group, which sounds super spiritual, but but don't give me any credit for that because it was not spiritual at all. I just wanted her to hear me play guitar and sing. And I was doing a Devo, so I wanted her to be like, wow, this guy, he's awesome. Uh, so totally like selfish ambition, but, but whatever. And so as the night's going on, like I'm of meeting with people and hanging out and she's talking with people and like i'm like oh this is great she's like doing her own thing and getting to know people in the college group and this is so awesome so then we i think started playing old school nintendo 64 and we pulled that out and and she's holding her own and i'm talking and i'm like this is just wonderful so the night ends and uh, we're about to drive back i'm going to drive us back to our dorm because we had a curfew at our dorm at life pacific college back then and i'm about to drive us back it's like bye guys see you soon oh that was so much fun can't wait to do it again get in the car she shuts the door and all of a sudden she looks at me and she goes really i'm like really that was so much fun and that's not the look she had on her face. I mean, we just got done with the, oh, wow, yeah, that was great. Thanks, guys, for having us over. Shut the door. Really? And I'm like, what? What's going on right? It's like, what, has, what just happened? Like, uh, uh, hey, come on. Is this a joke? Like, uh, like what's, what's going on? Is this a trick? And she looks at me and she goes, you barely talked to me all night. And I was like, but we were in proximity to each other. And like, I didn't know. And babe, we could talk right now. And too late, like totally too late at that point. It is, that ship has sailed. And, and she's like, do you even like spending time with me? And I'm like, of course I do, babe. You just, you have to tell me these things. I'm like deer in the headlights. I'm starting to perspire. I don't really know what to do. Obviously, it was a foolish thing that I had to learn about that you have to actually talk to your girlfriend to have her like like you and feel like she's worth something. So so I, I was like, babe, I, I, I don't know. And then what I said was something that she, that probably no man has ever said. Actually, every man has said that. So I was like, honey, just tell me what you want me to do. Just Please, just just tell me what you want me to do. 
And guess what her answer was? This is great. It's so classic. No. I want you to want what I want to do. And I want you to know what I want to do. And I want you to just do it. Thus the beginning of my learning curve, right? And so, like, looking at God, and and I think a lot of us as Christians, a lot of times we come to this place in our lives where we're just sitting in the car, we're sitting at our house, and we're frustrated, and we just want to look to God and say, God, just tell me what you want me to do. And I think we need to establish first that God is beyond comprehension, that his authority and his wisdom and his foreknowledge, it knows no end. He is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He breathes and stars exist. He speaks and oceans move. And this God is infinitely and intricately um, involved in our lives. And we know that because he sent his son and has done so much for us. So we know that he wants to be in our lives and he wants to, to have a purpose. And God has a purpose for your life. He cares about you. Uh, You're not an accident. You're not rejected. He has a plan for your life. So the question, knowing those things, how big God is, but how intimate he wants to be in your life is, God, why am I here? God, why do I have air in my lungs? Because I don't think it's just to live to make more money or to get to the next weekend. I I think that God, he's got a plan for us. I I love the saying that I heard a pastor say once was um, the fact that you are still living is literal proof that God isn't done with you yet. And so if we believe in this divine, all-powerful, loving, intelligent, involved God, I think that we should be so passionate about the purpose that he has for us. Because walking in his purpose will be the single most satisfying path that you could ever enter into. Because it's essentially what you were created to be. Because he is your creator and he has a desire to see you walk down the path that he's called you to walk down. And and I think that that is the most fulfilling thing, but a lot of times the most exhausting thing is when we end up doing something that we weren't called to do. Like, I love football. A lot of us love football. But I'm never going to be a linebacker. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. And I think you would all agree with that. I do not have the body frame of a linebacker. It's just, it's not in the cards for me. And a lot of times, I think we become our own worth worst enemy because we have this frustration trying to figure out, God, what do you want me to do? And we try to force it and we try and figure out what the plan is early and say, okay, well, it's got to be this or it's got to be this. And it comes to this moment like I had with Michelle where I was like, just tell me what you want me to do. And, And the fact is, I think that he's already telling us. I think that he's been telling you for a long time. One of the biggest ways that he tells you what he wants you to do is with the body that he's given you. Like he's like, Aaron, don't become a linebacker. Just look in the mirror. Like obviously, like you, you shouldn't be doing that with your life. You will die. Uh, I mean, you look at the bra- <laughs> you look at the brain that God has given you, and the desires that He's put in your heart, or the passions that you have, the inclinations, the gift mix, the abilities that you have, and, and that shows you what God wants you to do in life. 
Like Michelle, my wife, she can see somebody crying and she will start crying because she feels what they feel. She feels their pain. I look at them crying. I'm like, wow, that's awkward. Like, I literally don't think I have tear ducts. Like, it just, it's not who I am, but, but it's okay because there's some people and you think in math and numbers and strategies. And then there's other people and you think in colors and pink elephants. Like, it's just whoever you are, like be who God's called you to be. And the way that you do what God's called you to do is look at your gift mix. Look at what you're passionate about. And that's probably the primary way that God will show you what you should do in your life. In 1 Corinthians 12, 18, it says, But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleases. What does that mean? It means be you. It means that he has set you up with abilities and likes and thought processes and preferences. And he's called you to do things based off of those things. And he's called you to do them, not me to do them. He's called you to do what he's called you to do, not what he's called me to do. And the same, and it works for every single one of us that way. I, I mean, we are, you were designed to do what you were designed to do. And I know that sounds obvious, but that's the truth. You're designed to do what you're designed to do. And there's something inside of you that is drawn towards what you were designed for. And what you are drawn towards. And if you allow yourself to really look at what God wants you to do, you'll, you'll find it. You'll find what God has for your life. And we see in John chapter 4 insight into how it feels when you are walking in fulfillment of his call here on earth. This idea that I am strengthened, that I have a fulfillment. That is this idea sort of like food that Jesus uses. That doesn't really make sense to the disciples, but he says, I am in the will of God. And so I feel fulfilled. I feel complete. I feel whole. It says, in the meantime, the disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said, I have food which you do not know about. And when Jesus says this, it's sort of like slang during Jesus' day, like street language. What he's actually saying here is, I've got good eats. Like, I've got some good food. You're asking me if I want your food, but I've got this food. What Jesus is saying Literally, is something happens to my entire being when I am doing the will of the Father who sent me. When I do what God has designed me to do, I feel nourishment. I feel enthralled. I feel excited. I feel exhilarated. And the question is, do you feel that way this morning? Because if you have a relationship with God, I believe that his plan for your life is that you will feel all of those things just like Jesus did. And you can find that or you can find it again. In Psalm 34, 8, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Deuteronomy 8, 3 says, but man shall not live by bread alone, but by man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Now that word proceeds in the Hebrew is the word mausta. And that means to be birthed, to grow out of, to be created, or to be, um, to be birthed again. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so there's this idea or this feeling uh, that is relatable to every single one of us of being satisfied by food. And that's what Jesus uses as well as we hear in um, the book of Deuteronomy. That your soul, as much as you need food to not pass away... Your soul needs food. 
And that food comes from doing the will of God. And when you do what God's called you to do, there will be a confidence. I I can tell you just from my life that, that when I'm doing what God's called me to do, it's like the wind's at my back. There's a, a power and a confidence that comes, and it's not every moment. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are times where you're like, I do not want to get out of bed. Like, that is not what I want to do right now. But there's something inside of you that says, yeah, this is what God's called me to do. And a lot of times we'll think, well, well, there's this ultimate goal, and, and I might be doing this now, but that's not good enough forever. Like, this is not good What he's doing is really good. But I need to tell you that when God looks down from heaven at us, he doesn't see things as, well, he's doing that, so that's awesome. He's doing that, so that's okay. He looks, are you doing his will? And when you're doing his will, then you are succeeding. And that's when you will feel that feeling that Jesus is explaining to us. It's not when you're doing the best or what we would call the best. I and mean, we've got a ranking system, right? We think, oh, wow, that's really awesome. He's like telling all those people about Jesus and preaching every week. So that's the best thing that you could be doing. So God's really proud of him. And I'm over here and I'm selling cars. So, you know, God's not really as impressed with me. That's not how it works. That's how it works for us. That's not how it works for God. God sees you're doing my will. And that is the ultimate thing. There's nothing better. There's no ranking system. And a lot of us, I think we, we're here today, or we have this idea that we're waiting to do the will of God. What we're doing right now isn't really the will of God. We're just waiting to do the will of God. And in Ecclesiastes 9.10, it says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Which is to say, whatever comes your way, just do it and do it to the will of God. Now, obviously, I'm talking about within biblical and moral framework, right? Like, I'm not talking about like you're, you're going out and you're like, well, I'm pushing this stuff and people are buying. So I'm putting my hand to it and I'm making money. So I guess this is the will of God. No, no, no. I mean, come on. That's obviously not what we're talking about. Um, but it's also not biblical to do something just to do something else later on. Like, when David was tending sheep, it was about tending sheep. When he fought a bear, it was about fighting the bear. When he fought a lion, it was about fighting a lion. When he was playing the harp for Saul, it was about playing the harp for Saul. Sure, Goliaths were going to come, but it was about what he was doing in that moment and doing it with all of his might to glorify, glorify God. And my job as a pastor is no more important than... 10 years ago when I was cleaning toilets in Master's Commission. It's doing whatever God has called you to do in that moment and doing it with all of your ability in God's view. He sees and he'll say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. And he doesn't say, man, man, when I get up to heaven, he's not going to be like, wow, when you were cleaning those toilets, man, that was a drag, but you had a good attitude. And so, you know, I promoted you. We use this word promoted all the time thinking, well, I got promoted to this new thing. What does that say about the person who's a janitor? Right? I mean, we, we distort the view of God by talking about what we think is good and what is okay. But that's absolutely not how God sees it. And so looking at this idea of, God, what do you want me to do? 
Like, what is your will for my life? And, and I think you can descri- describe it really in uh, five ways. There's five aspects or um, parts of what I see um, God's will or finding God's will for your life is and my life is. And the first one is spiritual. It's about who you are way before it's about what you do or where you go. I believe that God's will for you is that you would truly be who he's called you to be. And I think in this idea of of the spiritual will of God, it's really, as the Bible says, to become more like Jesus every day. And I'm not talking about works. I'm talking that we should be nicer, that we should be sweeter, that we should be more gracious and really less intense, like probably less competitive for me at least. Um, have a brighter outlook on life. We should be better mothers, fathers, husbands, wives. We should love God more, uh, be grateful for heaven, excited about eternity, optimistic about the future that lies ahead of us. And ultimately, we should become better worshipers and followers of Jesus because this is really who we are called to be. It's spiritual and it's intrinsically, uh, spirit. this idea of God's will is inherently spiritual. Uh, Because you can't just jump to a vocational. It has to be about who you are before it's about what you do. And when you are doing what God has called you to be, there will be an excitement and anticipation that will come into your life. And you look at the idea of of even the nature of God's will and contrast it with the nature of sin. And when you feel like you are in the will of God and spiritually feeling this, this fulfillment, or when you are in the will or the nature of sin, and you feel almost a sense of fulfillment for a moment. But Proverbs uh, twenty seventeen in the message says this. It says, stolen bread tastes sweet, but soon your mouth is full of gravel. See, sin will always start out tasting like honey. And then you'll experience it, and you'll really like it. But if you give it some time, it will turn to death. It'll turn into something that it didn't start out as. I and mean, have you ever had that moment where you wake up the next morning, you're like, what was I thinking? I hate my life. Why did I do that? And, and this is what you always think, that, that wasn't me. And the reason you think it is because you're right, that wasn't me. You thought for a moment that was you. You're thinking, oh, this is great. This is exactly what I should do. But it's the insidious nature of sin. And that's why we struggle with sin. Because it seems so good. And you're like, I know that this was good. It tasted like honey. It's so sweet. I now have good eats. This is great. But you give it some time and it becomes rocks in your mouth. And it's because that is the true nature of sin. And you contrast that with the nature of the will of God. And a lot of times it is the exact opposite. Because a lot of times the will of God is challenging for a moment. Where sin can be sweet for a moment, the will of God can be challenging for a moment, but sin will leave you with a lifetime of regret where the will of God will leave you with a lifetime of fulfillment. It's in looking at the long run what God wants you to do. So, so the will of God is spiritual and the will of God is also relational. It's also about, um, God's will is also about who he's called you to. Like, if you have a job, you know that your job 
is not just about your job. In fact, it's primarily not about your job. It's about the people that you affect in your job from God's perspective. Maybe not from your boss's perspective, but from God's perspective, God's plan for your life is who you are and who you are affecting. And a lot of times what we get into thinking is we start thinking vocation over relation, vocationally over relationally, and um, we actually can frustrate or lose the nourishment that God can give us in the place where we're supposed to be because we've lost the, the, the aspect of this is supposed to be relationally. Like, let's say you're a teacher, and you're a really good teacher, and everyone knows that you're a good teacher, and, and you know that you're a good teacher. And so you're teaching, and you start to teach because you know you're a good teacher, because you know that you're making decent money. I'm teacher's not a bad example, but let's just say uh, you're making good money, and you, you feel good about doing what you're doing because you like to hear your own voice. Well, well, if that's what your mind spec or perspective is, it's not relationally. And, and you can actually lose that food or that fulfillment that God has wanted to give to you because it's not about you teaching or being a good teacher. It's about the students in your classroom. It's not about you. It's about the people that you're supposed to affect. That, that's why God has you there. He has you there so that you can be a light to the people who are around you. And God is calling you to be a voice in those people's world, in, in the people that you work with in their world, in the neighborhoods that you live in, in their world. And when relationally you fulfill and walk in the will of God, you will feel a strength and a fulfillment and, and a nourishment that you could never get on your own. So it's, it's spiritual and it's relational, but it's also vocational. I and mean, what has God called you to do or gifted you to do? And what are you doing right now? And can I just say for a moment that if you don't like what you're doing, like you should be able to just take a step back and sigh, just a big sigh of relief, a relief because uh, this is ahead of myself, but the will of God is not just vocational, but it's also seasonal. So, so just because you're somewhere right now, and if you don't really feel it, or you're not saying this is exactly what I want to do, you need to know that you are not doomed forever. Because the will of God is seasonal. There are seasons that we all go through. But when you're in that season, do whatever God has you doing with all of your might. And believe that he has you there. Jesus is sitting there at a well where the Jews don't go to, talking to an immoral woman. And, and this is a season for him. This is a moment in time where God has him doing something. And that's the time where he says, I feel fulfilled. It's not doing the big things. I mean, those were good too. Like sacrificing himself for our sins, re- being resurrected, defeating sin. Like all that stuff's awesome. But he's talking about being fulfilled by doing the will of God when he's talking to a no-name woman, immoral woman at a well in a place where Jews wouldn't go anyways. So when it comes to seasonally and you're doing something, you're like, man, why am I doing this? Listen, God knows you might not like it. And just like relax and take a step back and enjoy what you can, trusting that God has you there for a reason. And there might be somebody there who desperately needs to hear from God. And he's going to hear from God through you. That it's seasonal. 
And, and, and God will bring you to the place where you're doing something that you enjoy and something that you love. I, I think so many of us, we think that if my job is not torturing me, painful, difficult, and I have a terrible, if I don't have a terrible boss, then it must be selfish ambition and desires. And it should be the exact opposite of what I want. And I should hate my job and hate my commute and hate everything about everything that I do. That sounds like the will of God to me, right? I mean, that's, that's what we think sometimes. It's like, hello, like that's not God. Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Jesus is talking. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What he's talking about here is the stocks that the oxen would go into, and those stocks were tailor-made for the oxen to allow them to move forward and do what they were supposed to do when they were supposed to do it. And what I'm telling you is that God has tailor-made a space for you to operate in. He's given you a spot. And yes, it might be seasonally, but he's given you every tool that you need to succeed in it. Because the will of God is spiritual, it's relational, and it's also seasonal and vocational. And it's also, it's also locational. I said vocational, locational. Locational, um, we have to minister where God's called us to minister. And yes, I would love for all of us to stay here forever because I'm a pastor. And I love it if we we're all here every single day. Well, not really. But, but it would be so great if we could always just be here. But there are times God's going to call you to do something. And when you are called to do it, you've got to go. When God calls you to Denver or to Portland or Seattle or New York or England or Rio or wherever it might be, you have to go because when you want to feel that nourishment from God, it only comes when you obey his will and you go where he's called you to go. You have to find the people that he's called you to. You have to know who you are in him. You have to find, yeah, what God's calling you to right now. And then you have to say, okay, God, where is it? Where do you want me to go? And you start to think of all these things and the will of God and what do you have for my life? God, what do you want me to do? And okay, so, so it's about who I am in you first. And then it's about who you've called me to minister to. And then, yeah, it's about what you've called my hands to do, but it's also about the season that you've called me to do it. And it's about the location that you've called me to do it. And, oh, my goodness, there's all these things. But, and, and I want to add even a sixth thing to this list. I think sometimes the will of God is slightly illogical. It can seem crazy at times. Because you look at Jesus, and when he talks about the will of God and be fulfilled in the will of God, he does something that the people around him, the disciples, the people that are closest to him, they would have looked at him, and they would say, you're crazy. You have lost your mind. That's what the Jews would have looked at Jesus and thought. Like, that, that's the will of God? And Jesus is sitting there with a woman in a place where he's not supposed to be, He's saying, I just fulfilled the will of God. It sometimes seems illogical. He turns to these 12 disciples who don't even want to be there. We're like, can we just go eat food? And he says, I just was strengthened by God because I was walking in the things he's called me to do. You know, as illogical as the will of God sometimes will seem, 
It just tells you that, that we shouldn't be living safe lives all the time. We shouldn't just be sitting and, and trying to make sure that we've got everything, all our ducks in a row and everything lined up for our life. And sometimes God's calling us to risk things. He's calling us to do things that don't seem safe, that don't seem predictable. I think that God and, and your Christianity and your faith and walk with God, I, I don't think it should be as predictable as sometimes we think it should be. And I don't think that this community should be predictable or safe either. I think that there are times when we will do things that seem unsafe, that seem a little crazy, that seem a little out there. We think, why are we doing that? Everything's fine here. And God's saying, no, I'm calling you to go to a well in Samaria. And we're like, okay, God, because I know you have somebody there that I'm supposed to meet and I'm supposed to touch. And I'm supposed to spread the good news to. Illogical, crazy, sometimes it's unnerving. But we have to risk everything to, in an effort to tell this world about who Jesus is. Because that's what he did. He walked around, he did things that a lot of times you and I will look at and say, wow, that's not what I thought a Messiah would do. But we have to think outside of that. And obviously, we have to use wisdom. We're not going to do stupid things. We're going to do wise things. But we're not going to live safe. This church is not going to be a safe church where we do cute, safe, predictable things that Christians ought to do. We're going to go out into the world. We are going to expand the reach and the voice of the Word of God through our ministry. We're going to trust that God's going to be there with us. And we're going to do it in wisdom, but we're going to do it risky. We're not going to be safe with anything that God gives us here. I mean, let's talk about the money of this church. We're going to be wise with the money of this church, but we will be um, risky with the, will, with the money of this church. Because I think Jesus talks about something in the Bible where he says there's a guy who has a talent, and he goes and he hides it, and he's called two things. He's called wicked and lazy, and I do not want to be called wicked and lazy by Jesus. So we're going to risk it all. For Jesus, We're going to go out. And what does that mean? Like, how, how does that fit into you and me and how we're going to do things? I don't know completely, but I know that God's calling us to do something bigger than what we're doing now. And I believe that in 2017, that he's going to have us be a little illogical at times. That he's going to call us to the wells. He's going to call us to the places where, where Christians maybe don't always go or, or where, where it doesn't really make sense to go. But we're going to do it because God's called us to do it. Because that, it wasn't in the temple where Jesus said, yep, here's the will of God. It was at the well. We can't just stay in the temple. We love the temple, and God created the temple. But it's not about just staying here. It's about going out and risking it all for who Jesus is and to proclaim the name of God to the world that we live in. I believe that one great definition of the will of God is God's plan for your part in his history. That it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. It's about what he wants to do, the plan that he has. And we'll say, God, whatever you have for us, whatever you have for this church, we will go and do it with everything that we have. 
We're not going to be the disciples who say, we're not going there. That's crazy. No one goes there. We're going to say, God, if you're walking, we're following. Because that's who we are. And if we're not going to do that, we might as well be a glorified glee club or YMCA. Or What are we doing? We're here to push and expand the name of God to the world that we live in. Every single one of us. Whether that be in your neighborhood, whether that be here. We're going to do that. Because in 2017, when we say, God, what do you want me to do? And he answers, and we're like, oh, shoot, now what do we do? (laughs) We're going to do it. And I'm excited. I'm excited for us to become founded on the word of God and continually hear from the Lord. But not just for here, but so that we can send it out. So that we have tools. That's what our discipleship's about. That's what um, going through Ephesians is about. It's about having it here so it can go there. If it stays here, oh my goodness. That is the biggest disappointment. It's got to go there. We have to do what Jesus has called us to do. To go out into all the world and make disciples. To tell people about who God is. To be a light on a hill. So I just pray, my prayer for you is that you and I would, would really say, God, what are you calling me to do? How do I do it? What have you gifted me to do? I'm going to do that. And while I'm here in this place, I'm going to do everything as, as well as I can and with as good of an attitude as I can, knowing that you're going to use it and that you're going to use my gifts to bring others to know who you are. So that's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for this church in 2017.